Just two verses, verses 6 and 7. And I want to speak to you today on the path to peace of mind. The path to peace of mind. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, as we have been traveling through this epistle, we find that the Apostle Paul has been encouraging these Philippian believers to emulate the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And of course, the Lord Jesus is our Savior. And he gives to us by faith in him imputed righteousness. That means that we can never live up to a standard that is acceptable with God, in God's holy sight. And therefore, in order to be saved and be acceptable with God and enter into God's heaven, Jesus has to give us the righteousness of God by faith. He gives us, if you like, his goodness to get us to God's presence. So we can never in any sense really live up to the example of the Lord Jesus. But once you're a Christian, once you're born again, you're given a new life. And the Spirit of God lives within you and enables you by faith to live, we are told, like Christ. Let us never forget that, that we are Christians, Christ's ones, Christ's followers and disciples. And we are to emulate by the Spirit his example. Of course, that's what he says in chapter 2 and in verse 5. This, if you like the crux or the summing up of the whole of this epistle, let this mind or this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So whatever was Christ's attitude, that is to be the attitude of the child of God and disciple of the Lord Jesus. And if we had time, we could look at Galatians chapter 5 and see that the attitude of Christ is to be seen in the believer by what is called the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know whether you're familiar with those, but the first three fruit of the Spirit are given in chapter 4 of Philippians. And we've been looking at them in past weeks. Perhaps you haven't realized it. But in verse 2, Paul beseeches Eudius and Syntyche, two warring factions, sisters in the assembly in Philippi, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. He entreats them to work together and effectively to love one another, to stop fighting with each other and to love each other. So there's the first fruit of the Spirit, love. We look at verse 4. This was our last study. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. The second fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. We're going to look this morning in verse 7 at the third fruit of the Spirit. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace. Love, joy, peace. Now peace is one of the most precious of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So precious that it is the legacy that has been left behind by the Lord Jesus when he was on his way to the cross, resurrected, ascended to heaven, he has left us this great peace that is beyond all comprehension, the Bible says. In fact, when the Lord was in the upper room, in those famous verses in John chapter 14, in verse 27, he said to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And if there's anything that this old world is seeking today, whether psychologically or emotionally or nationally or internationally, it is peace. 
But what I want you to notice as we look at the path to peace of mind from God's perspective today is that this is not the peace that the world gives or the world seeks after. This peace is God's peace. God's peace. It's not a peace that springs from your own self internally, whether from your emotion, your heart, or even your mind. It's not acquired through psychological somersaults or the particular disposition of personality and character that you have been born with or you acquire in whatever means possible. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a supernatural peace that comes from God outside of humanity. Let me also say that we're not talking about peace with God. Peace with God comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus that he shed on Calvary that we might be reconciled to God and have our sins forgiven. And let me say that a prerequisite to know God's peace is to have this peace through the blood of his cross. And if you're not a Christian today and you've been grappling with how to get peace of mind and peace of heart and tranquility and peace with yourself and peace with God, that can only happen by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary. You cannot have God's peace without peace with God. But yes, this God's peace is, is not equated with, with peace with God, but it is the peace of God himself. Let that be very clear in your mind. What we're talking about today is God's own calm. God's own restful heart. Whatever that really means, to know God's calm and restful heart as our own personal possession. If you imagine this for a second, it is God filling the human heart with his own divine stillness. It is the peace of God. Now, I hope you're sitting there this morning saying, how can I get it? How can this be mine? Well, there are three things that these verses outline for us, and they're very simple, and they all lead to this peace of mind. The first is this, worry about nothing. The second, pray about everything. The third, be thankful for anything. And we will find that those three factors in the equation will lead to the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first today. Worry about nothing. Now, I want to make this so simple because the ministry from these two verses is so practical that I don't want us to miss it. I don't want any of us to go away and not really take something with you. What is worry? We need to ask that question right away. What is worry? Now let me say that when Paul says, be careful for nothing, that's really what he's saying. Be anxious for nothing or don't be worried about anything. And when it says careful, it's a little bit misleading in that translation because there is a legitimate care and a legitimate concern that we ought to all have about the things of our lives. And what Paul is encouraging here is, it's not a lack of carefulness with our lives or our livelihood, not a lack of thoughtfulness. And I think that some of us could be doing with a greater carefulness and thoughtfulness about the way we dress, about the way we look, about the way we, we discipline ourselves and go about our daily business. Paul is not encouraging us to neglect ourselves or to be disconcerned in any way with, with the affairs and the effects of life and its circumstances. 
What Paul is talking about is excessive carefulness. Excessive carefulness that, that spills over from a legitimate concern and, and care to something that is illegitimate, to something that is excessive and, and that transgresses into the realm of worry and anxiety. Now, let me tease it out a little bit more for you. How do you know when your care and your worry is excessive? Well, here's three things to judge it by. First of all, if you're more anxious about what you desire than what God's will is, you are too careful. Many people believe that peace comes when you get what you want. When you get that bank balance that you want, or the car that you want, or the home that you want, or the health that you want, that then peace will come into your life. That is not the case. But the Bible teaches and testifies that the peace of God comes when you seek not what you want, but what God wants. So you are anxious, over-careful in your life if you are striving after your own dreams, imaginations, rather than seeking God's will. The second way that you know when your care is too excessive is that when you hurry into hasty and ill-advised decisions and actions. When you, you get into a frenzy to such an extent that you make decisions quickly and unadvisedly and in the heat of the moment, that is a sign that you're over-careful and that you're too anxious and that you worry too much. Isaiah said in Isaiah 28, 16, He that believeth shall not make haste. Hurry is a part of worry. But to be a prayerful person that waits on God, you don't need to hurry because God is in no hurry. And God is an eternal being. He's outside of time. And time is not a factor or an issue with God. And therefore we need not hurry or make haste in our decision. A third way that we can know that our care is over excessive is when we are constantly agitated in a phenomenon of unrest. Do you ever feel like that? Like your insides are convulsing with pins and needles. When there's this impulse within you that it seems to be taking all life and vitality away from you. And it's this unrest. And it's a sign that you're over careful about many, many things. And unrest, if anything, is not a characteristic of peace or of fear. You might say that these three signs of over-anxiousness and excessive care could be characteristics of our own society in which we live today. To be more anxious about what you want than what God wants. To hurry and have haste. To make ill-advised decisions. To not wait upon God. And thirdly, to be constantly agitated and, and under a, a phenomenon of unrest. One China man on one occasion was asked to sum up our Western generation and he summed it up in three words. Hurry worry and bury. It would seem, isn't it, that that's a summary of most of our lives. Now, now, don't misunderstand Paul here. He's not belittling our problems. He's not saying that you should have no cares at all, that you should just have blow it all to the wind. Not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, what is important in life is what you do with your cares. Whether you take your cares upon yourself and try to sort them out by worry and anxiety and excessive carefulness, or whether you cast your care upon God. If you like, that is the difference between legitimate cares 
and illegitimate ones, and the illegitimate ones are anxiety, worry. F.B. Marr says, the Bible scholar, that this word anxiety in the English comes from the root of anger. A.N., the beginning anxiety, A.N., anger. And the root of it actually refers to the physical act of choking. Isn't that a wonderful picture of worry? You feel you're being choked. That the air's not being able to get to the airways, or that the water's coming over your head and, and it's going to drown you and you, you can't keep your head above the water. And what Paul is saying is anxiety and worry chokes life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope we're clear on what worry is and when care is needlessly excessive. But let's answer another question before we go any further. What do we worry about? It's often the way that we can know what worry is. What are the things that we worry about? Well, statisticians at the University of Wisconsin in the United States studied this. They came up with this uh, result that the average individual worries can be divided into four different categories and percentages. And they say that the first thing, top of them all, people worry about things that never, ever happened not just never happened, but never ever happened and materialized. And that section came to 40% of the people surveyed. Mark Twain, who wasn't a believer, said, I am an old man and have had many troubles. Most of them never happened. Isn't that right? We tend to worry more about things that not only aren't happening, but, but have never ever materialized in our existence. The second category was... People worrying about things that had gone in the past, that had been over and finished, and that could never be changed with all the worry in the world. 30% of people were worrying about those things that were dead and gone, and, and time couldn't be put back to rectify. The third category was people who worried about petty and needless worries. 20% of those people silly things. Maybe they are legitimate concerns, but were those concerns flew over into excessive anxiety and worry and nervous. Swedish proverb put it well when it defined these worries. Worry like this gives a small thing a big shadow. Mountains out of molehills, isn't it? Then the fourth category, these statisticians in Wisconsin called legitimate worries. They came to only 8%. Let me say, according to the word of God, there are no legitimate worries. It says of Martha in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, that she was careful. It's the same word. Anxious about many things. And maybe they were legitimate things, but she let them crowd in amongst, uh, um, into her heart and take over her life. Where Paul says we should be careful, not about many things, but about nothing. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ used the same expression when he said this in our English version, take no thought. It's exactly the same Greek phrase. Take no thought. Be anxious and careful about nothing. And he was speaking in the context of, of being worried about your food and your drink and your clothing and the shelter over your head or any facets of your earthly future and well-being. You were to go to Matthew chapter 13, the Lord Jesus told the very well-known parable about the sower who went to sow the seed. 
But one of the things the Lord Jesus said, that some of the seed was sown, and the weeds and the thorns and the thistles came up and grew around the seed and choked it. And he said that those thorns and thistles and weeds were the cares of this world. And you know what the cares and the worries and over-excessive anxiety of the world does? It chokes the word of God in your life, and it also stifles and suffocates God's fruitfulness that he wants to outflow from your life by his Spirit. Do you see it? These things that we worry about. I wonder, are you a worrier in our gathering today? Some of these Philippians must have been because Paul is telling them and ordering them as he orders us to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Stop worrying. It's very clear. And that's what I want you to see just now. There's two things I want you to see about worry, but the first is this. Worry is sin. That worry is sin. John Wesley, the great Methodist evangelist, said, I would no more worry than I would curse or swear. It's equally as sin as any other sin. And just as any other sin in the life of a believer robs you of your peace between you and God and the peace in your own heart, so worry does exactly the same. And I wonder when you find yourself worrying, biting your nails or your insides being wrenched uh, like a wet rag being wrung out, do you stop in your tracks? Do you get on your knees? Do you lift your head high to heaven and do you confess it? A sin. Because that's what it is. Just as much a sin as adultery or murder or idolatry. Yet how often do we as believers treat anxiety and worry as some kind of light thing before God? You hear people say, well, that's just me. That's my makeup. That's the way I am. I'm just a worrier. God says, when you worry, you need to realize that you have fallen into sin. Now, let's look at why worry is sin. I'm not saying that, that sometimes the reasons for our worry are legitimate cares, but the problem is how we approach our cares and our concerns. Worry comes when you face a problem and you feel your utter inadequacy to, to overcome it. Isn't that right? When it's out of your control, you, you start to worry about it. Now, the sin comes in. When you determine that you're not going to give that concern over to God, but you're going to take that concern upon yourself, and even though that you know that you don't have the resources to meet that concern, you think, well, I'll have a good go at it anyway, at least in my mind and in my heart. Paul says, and the word of God testifies right throughout it all, that if we don't transfer that sense of inadequacy to God's sufficiency, we will worry and worry is sin. Herbert Lockyer, the great scholar, and years ago came from the States to preach here in the Iron Hall, I believe, said that, that worry is sin and that it produces doubt in the mind of a believer in threefold direction. Listen to this carefully. First of all, God's love is doubted when we worry. There's no doubt about it being a sin. Here's it clarified for you. His love is doubted. Because worry implies that he, he cares little for his children. That he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for. Are you doubting the love of God? Secondly, he says, God's wisdom is doubted. When we worry, it's as if God's not able to plan for his own children. That he doesn't know what's best for them. And the plan that he wants them to take them down. 
You doubting God's wisdom? You are if you worry. Thirdly, he said, God's power is doubted because it's doubted that his grace is sufficient for every need that comes across your path. Can you see how worry is such a sin? God's love, God's wisdom, God's power is doubted. William Ward put it like this, worry is faith in the negative, in the reverse. Trust in the unpleasant, assurance of disaster and belief in defeat. And I would say today on the authority of God's word, worry is a form of practical atheism because it betrays a lack of trust and faith in God. Do you see how serious this sin is? It's a sin. You heard about that guy hanging off a cliff, I think, last night on the news. And you know what he did? He cut off his arm. Awful. He cut off his arm and the Lord Jesus said, if your hand offend, you cut it off. If your eye offend, you pluck it out and cast it away. There's no negotiation with sin. And worry is as big a sin as any here. What do we do? Do we, do we talk about it? No, we don't talk about it. Do we worry about our worrying? No, we don't do that either. We cast it away. Because worry, first of all, is sin. But secondly, see this. Worry is the enemy of God's peace. William Ward also said these words. Worry distorts our thinking. It disrupts our work. It disquiets our soul. It disturbs our body. It disfigures our face. It destroys our friends, demoralizes our life, defeats our faith, debilitates our energy. It unfits us to meet our difficulties. It prevents us from thinking clearly. It causes our hands to tremble so much that we cannot perform any delicate operation at all. Worry is what causes the crease on your brow. It's what ties your stomach in knots and makes you irritable and hard to get along with. And there are even those who, when they find themselves not worrying, that they start to worry about not worrying. I can see some of you are that person. The poet put it like this, I've joined the new Don't Worry Club. And now I hold my breath, I'm so afraid I'll worry that I'm worried half to death. But God gives us a command. Don't worry, and it's don't worry about anything. Can you see the magnitude of this? The command is unconditional and unlimited, not even worrying about your own spiritual life. It doesn't say don't be careful, and some of you could do with being, and as well as me, I include myself, more careful about your spiritual walk, but not to the extent, extent of over-anxiousness where it eats into us and it destroys us. One person said, ulcers don't come from what you eat, but they come from what's eating you. I wonder what's eating you today. Paul says, whatever it is, even your spiritual life, your friends, even your answers to prayer, even the highest and the holiest things, Scripture consistently from beginning to end forbids worry because it is a sin and it robs you of God's peace. So here's the first step on the path to peace of mind. Worry about nothing. Here's the second step. Pray about Everything, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
pray about everything. Now you might ask, well, I do try and pray about everything, but what kind of prayer brings this peace and stops my worrying? Well, here it is simply. It's prayer that prays for everything. Prayer that prays for any, everything and anything. Nothing is excluded where you bring your cares to God. You're not taking them on yourself. You're not trying to work them out in your own mind and in your heart and trying to solve the unsolvable. Trying to meet the impossible with your finite mind and heart and power and impotence. But it is bringing your cares and turning them into prayers and giving them to God. C.H. Spurgeon, the old preacher, put it well when he said, Prayer is the cure for care. That may be too simple for you, but that's the fact. You look at verse 6, and there are three different words used for prayer in the verse in the Greek language. The first is translated in English, just prayer. It means general prayer, adoration and worship to God and devotion to him as you come to him. Sometimes we rush before God into his presence and we feel to reverence him. We feel to hallow his name when we come to him and we ask for the things that we need before we recognize the God that we're coming to. You know, I feel that if we really saw the the mighty nature of God, the majesty and the power and the character of him, we would be infused with faith as we get a glimpse of God and his greatness, his character and his ability. And it would help us before we come and ask for the necessary thing. There's a lesson in prayer in itself. When you bring your needs, every need before God, don't forget to reverence him. Don't forget to worship him. Don't forget to get a glimpse of the king that you come to, the petitions that you bring to. The second word is the word supplication. Supplication. It literally means an earnest, specific request. It's not a half-hearted prayer, but it's a prayer where you're actually pouring yourself into it. You're pouring out your soul to God as an offering for specific things. Not just generally, Lord bless the missionaries, Lord bless the evangelists and the pastors and the sick and the elderly and all this. But coming specifically with that care that you have and bringing that care to God. The third word that's used is requests. Supplication, making your requests known unto God. And there could be a a, a different sense that this is different from supplication. This is prayer in detail. Not just specifically, but in detail. Because God is interested in every minute detail. You might look at this and say, prayer, supplication, (laughs) request. What's the difference in? Well, Guy King, the commentator, I think, Uh, defines it well. He illustrated it like this. God is interested in the concert as a whole. The program in particular and the items in detail. Isn't that lovely? The concert as a whole, the program in particular and the items in detail, or he put it like this in our context, he's interested in this meeting in general. But he's interested in the one heart in particular, that is laden down with cares. But he's also interested, not only in that one heart, but each individual item and detail that is your care. George Muller, that great man of faith, we think of his life of prayer in general, don't we? The many things that he prayed for. And we would think of his orphanages in particular. And we would think of the children's welfare in detail. Every little head of every boy and girl in that place. And isn't it wonderful 
that we are encouraged to bring to God our cares, the big things, the little things, no matter how daft we think them to be, we're to bring them to God. I hear some clever clogs at the time saying, why do you have to let God know about things that he already knows about? Doesn't it say in the Bible that he knows what we're going to ask before we even ask it? Of course it says that. And don't get me wrong, I don't believe that we should be pointing things out to God that God already knows. Sometimes you think God didn't know some of the things. You hear some people say in the prayer meeting, Lord, I don't know whether you saw the, the, the news tonight, but as if the Lord didn't see it. We don't need to tell God things he knows. And let me say, we don't need to preach to God in the prayer meeting either. But when we bring our cares unto God and requests, what we are doing is communicating to God the transference. We're transferring our cares from ourselves unto him. And by doing that, it becomes more than a prayer, but it becomes an act of faith. That's why we request specifically. It's not some kind of psychological exercise that only affects the one who prays. Listen to this. Prayer makes a difference. It changes things. It changes people, I know. But it changes not just you, but the things that you pray about. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. And thirdly, be thankful for anything. I know there are some dear souls in this gathering, and I do not want to be insensitive to you. And you're saying, well, David, I have prayed like you've just been talking about, and, and I haven't got what I've, I've asked for. It seems that my circumstances only get worse and worse. Well, Paul says, the requests that you make are to be made known unto God, but the supplication is to be with thanksgiving. This is thankful prayer that is insinuating, is thankful for anything. You're to be praiseful as well as prayerful. And I would say that even those who succeed among us in prayer, and I imagine that there are very few of those, would have to confess that you, you feel where this is concerned, to bring your thanksgiving to God. And not only thanking him for what he's already done, but I think what's insinuated is thanking him for what he's going to do. I think for you, soul, that's been praying for many years about maybe one thing in particular, this praying with thankfulness indicates that your will is surrendered to God. Do you think that's what it means? That you're asking, you're pleading, you're weeping, you're breaking your heart for this particular concern, but you're also surrendered to thank God for anything, even if he doesn't bring it to pass now. This is how the peace of God will come into your heart and flood your soul when you're surrendered to God, and I believe more than that. You might say, well, I can't do that until I get what I want. But this is the way to get what you want. And even to come in faith in such a capacity to thank him by faith for what he is going to do, even though you cannot see him doing. And I know that people might think, well, David, what do you know about what you're talking about today? You've never been through what I'm going through. You haven't a notion. Well, you're probably right, I don't. But Paul did. Wasn't he in prison? Wasn't he suffering? This isn't just some bombastic preacher in airbag 
pontificating to those who doesn't know uh, to, to whom they know he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is a man that's suffering, and he says, "Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything with supplication, with thanksgiving. Make your petitions and your requests known to God, and the peace of God will flood your heart and mind." What he's saying is. Don't come in prayer with a spirit of pessimism, but come in faith. Sometimes the prayer meeting would depress you. People praying as if God couldn't move, as if God couldn't do anything, as if God had forgotten their predicament. God is a God who can do all things. I love those three in the fiery furnace. God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we'll worship him. We'll praise him. One was said, if a life full of care is filled with prayer, and if that prayer is filled with praise, it will result in peace. It will result in, fourthly, what he has called the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind. Now that, please, don't get away from this worry issue. See that this peace is not a matter of chance. It's not down to luck or fate. It's a matter of choice. going to keep your cares yourself you're going to give them up to God to know the peace the very peace of God what am I talking about I'm talking about the peace that was in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ himself throughout all the agitating scenes of his journey imagine the last moments of his life his arrest his death on the cross and right throughout it all he bore in his heart the peace of God Resigned with unbroken calm to God's will. That peace can be yours. Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Imagine him. He is spat upon, he is mocked. He's scourged, crucified, and never for a single moment does he lose his peace or his balance in the midst of the excitement of the garden being led forth as a criminal to Calvary. He was there, a miracle of peace. So much so that when Peter cuts off the servant of the high priest here, Malchus, he is able in that peace and disposition of tranquility to heal his ear. And when standing before Pilate, the royalty of his manhood was so apparent that the governor himself was convinced that he had done nothing amiss and he even for a moment became the advocate of Christ himself. I wonder are there times when the storms have rocked your inner lake? How often the fever of cares in this world has entered because there's been no barrier to stop it and the pulse of your soul has risen to fever heat until you felt the choking of anxiety and excessive care around your neck. Can I tell you, there is a barrier that is available. It is the peace of God which literally garrisons your heart and your mind. It's like an army of troops around your heart to stop those negative thoughts coming in. And it transcends all understanding. It's beyond comprehension. And, and see that the opposite of that, we try to, to understand our problems. We try to sort them out, make them right in our mind. But this peace, we can't understand it. You can understand why when the sun is shining, everybody's happy. 
That's not beyond understanding when friends and comforts are around you, when you've got health and wealth. But what is beyond understanding when all those things are taken away and the peace of God is a guardian and a garrison to your heart? The word is literally shall keep actually a mount guard standing as a sentry around your heart. Patrolling the gates of your mind, the outposts of your being, standing in faithful and protective service at the gateway of your feelings to act against any threats, intrusion and disturbance. Because your mind is not on your cares, but it's on God. Then Isaiah say, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. How can you do it? Well, it's so simple it's profound it's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5 verse 7 cast all your care upon me for I care for you can I finish with a story or two to apply it to you lady said to her husband why can't you sleep he had been walking up and down pacing the bedroom floor from 3am in the morning and he says honey I have borrowed a thousand pounds off the next door neighbour and I haven't got it to give him back. I can't pay him and I have to pay him back tomorrow. The wife jumped out of bed, flung open the windows, stuck her head out and shouted, Sam! Sam! After a few minutes, the groggy neighbour opened his windows and stuck his head out. What is it? He mumbled. You know that thousand pounds that my husband owes you? Yes? Well, he hasn't got it. She closed the doors, or the windows, went back to bed, turned to her husband and said, now you go to sleep and let him pace the floor. <laughs> but isn't that it? Cast your care upon him. Man used to worry about everything. His friends knew him as a chronic worrier, and one day his friends saw him with a smile on his face whistling. And they said, can that be our mate? It can't be. But it is. And they stopped him and they said, what, what has happened? He said, I'm paying a man to do all my worrying for me. You mean you aren't worrying anymore? No. And whenever I'm inclined to worry, I just let him do it for me. How much do you pay him? He said, I pay him £2,500 a week. He said, well, how can you afford that? He says, well, that's not my worry. <laughs> Friends, can I recite to you J.B. Phillips' translation of First Peter 5, 7? Listen, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him. For you are his personal concern. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Be thankful for anything. And the peace of God will defend your heart through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Father, we thank thee that thou art a compassionate and a caring and a loving God towards thy children. And we thank thee that thou art always there. But how often we carry our burdens ourselves when there's no need. And Lord, forgive us of this sin, but give us the grace today to cast our burden upon the Lord, for he shall sustain us. He shall not suffer the righteous to be moved. And Lord, those who have come into this place heavy-hearted, may they go with the peace of God, garrisoning their heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And those who do not know the Savior and do not know this peace,
that they will take him as their own, that they will hear him say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May they know his peace that passeth all understanding. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.